I find, I find it funny because yeah, it's like look at me, look at me. And everybody looks at you, and you don't know what to do. And 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 people do the. It's a big joke on Twitter. You know, you get like you get uh, you know twenty thousand uh, uh, retweets, and you go, oh, check out my SoundCloud. And you know, it's an o- ongoing joke. And uh, but you like you should have something ready when this popularity hits. Like, and that's the thing. You know, it's like we got it, suddenly twenty thousand people know who you are. You got something ready to sell them. And it's uh, uh, and I guess the attention economy is sort of fueled by this thing in the background that there's always somebody once you're fully, wonderfully commodified and you have a number attached to you like 300 million people or something, then that's kind of the worth. It's like in video, like when you earn something in a video game, it's virtual. You know, it's like I got I got 120 of these jewels. You know, what are, what are they good for? I can buy costumes for a little cartoon character. It's weird, right? It's just that it's not a thing you can really get, but it's still an economy. And uh, um, I'll never fully understand that. Hi, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame and whatever else crosses my and my guests' minds. Episode 64. My name is Jamie. My guest is Hardy. We'll get to more about that in a few minutes. But first, a great many of you have heard about, and I'm sure a pretty great many of you have seen, Hannah Gatsby's comedy special on Netflix called Nanette. You notice I use the word comedy special, and that's what I'd like to talk about. Uh, let me, uh, by full, full disclosure here, I am not here to criticize Nanette. I've seen it twice. I thought it was terrific, very moving, and very funny at times, and at times very not funny. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you about, because while there has been an incredible groundswell of support for this special and people are raving about it left and right, there is also a fairly considerable contingent of, I would say, 112% men, I never said I was any good at math, who would rather talk about whether it is comedy or not and whether it should be called stand-up than about the topics that it raises that make men uncomfortable. The backlash I'm referring to has been online and in print. And uh, if if you like comedy and kind of inside baseball comedy stuff, I recommend a podcast called The Jackie and Laurie Show. That's Jackie Cation and my former guest, Laurie Kilmartin, talking about their experiences as longtime stand-up comics, uh, various gigs, going on the road, trying to get work, trying to make a living. Um, it's interesting to hear two successful comics talk about the struggle, uh, especially one of them is a writer for Conan, and she's still she's still hustling, still struggling. But aside from talking about how much the piece uh, uh, Hannah Gatsby's uh, work meant to them, they've been talking about being in green rooms before and after sets recently and hearing a lot of guys 
getting really worked up and needing to say, but it's not comedy. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit today in terms of my own experience. Uh, first of all, Jackie and Lori and a lot of people that I asked on, I, I sent out a little uh, message on Facebook and Twitter asking for people to list their favorite comedy specials that went beyond comedy and got very serious or dark or otherwise non-comedic. And I got a lot of great responses, and I'm not going to go into all of them here, but you can find them. Google it. Google not funny comedy specials. <laughs> but Nanette is very funny. Um, in fact, for the first 17 minutes, I clocked it in my second uh, listen, second watch viewing um, because of all this backlash, uh, first 17 minutes of the about an hour is pure comedy. Uh, but then it gets serious. Uh, as Ms. Gadsby, uh, lesbian, lesbian brought up in Tasmania in a, in a, if anything, as, you know, homophobic and patriarchal culture as, as ours here, if not much more so, talks about her experiences and posits that in terms of whether she should stop doing comedy. And the way I uh, interpreted what she meant by that is, and she kind of says it, but I don't know if it's the full meaning. I don't want to, I don't want to miss, I don't want to misrepresent her that a, she doesn't want to do self-deprecating humor because self-deprecating humor is self-belittling humor. So doing jokes about being a lesbian she did about 17 minutes with a lot of it in there, but then she talked about how she doesn't want to do it anymore. And then she went into um, the, 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 the idea of comedy as increasing tension and then release, a setup and a punchline. And one of the reasons that this, and this piece grows and becomes more and more emotional and powerful is that she's saying, I don't want to offer that release quite so much anymore. I want you to be forced to stay in the tension of injustice in the world. That's my, that's my take on it. So, and as the piece goes on, she calls men to task more and more and does some really great flipping around of the old, what's the matter? Don't you have a sense of humor that men often say to women like smile, honey. And it, it, she calls for men to, to reckon and take responsibility, as you may have may recall I did a while back. And thus, a bunch of men would rather focus on it not being a real comedy special than on the content. And there have been pieces written on that, and there have been uh, lots of chatter on Twitter and the, the internets on it. But what struck me as, as this special, which came out three months ago now, it keeps having these, these waves of attention and waves of backlash. But most recently, a fellow by the name of Norm MacDonald, who you may have heard of, former Saturday Night Light, Saturday Night Live. I think I mixed Friday Night Lights and Saturday Night Live there. Weekend Update host. An interview came out last week in which he said, I wish I could do a Norm impression, but I can't. And if, you're, if you know him, you can, you can do your own in your head. I've never seen the Nanette thing because I never wanted to comment on it. But from what I've read about it, 
Comedian Hannah Gatsby is saying that comedy is now not about laughter. And of course, that's a slap in the face for a traditional stand-up comedian who thinks that comedy, by dictionary definition, is about laughter. And that's your job. You actually do have a job on stage. Nanette doesn't sound like stand-up to me. That sounds like a one-woman show. And one-person shows are incredibly powerful. But it's not stand-up comedy, and it's not the same thing. Now let's take that apart for a minute. (laughs) For one thing, he's never seen it because he never wanted to comment on it. Well, that's some wonderful narcissism. But from what I've read about it, it goes without saying that if that's what you're basing it on, shut up, Norm. And I won't go on at length, but at the end, he slips in and one person shows are incredibly powerful, but it's not stand-up comedy and it's not the same thing. Now that to me is, is completely disingenuous, backhanded, and either intentionally or not, disempowering of a comedian who is trying to do something serious in a special. There is a long history, as I've said before, of comedians taking serious turns in specials no less drastic than than Hannah Gatsby's. But for some reason, I think we all know what the reasons are, uh, discomfort, misogyny, homophobia. This one is getting a lot of guys' attention. Patton Oswalt, just a year, year and a half ago, made a special that was largely about the death of his wife. You didn't hear a peep about anyone complaining that it wasn't stand-up comedy. But why specifically is it disempowering if he says one person shows are incredibly powerful, powerful? Here's why. In the 90s in San Francisco, I put in many years doing performance art, making performance in a dance company and ended up making two full length solo shows of my own Uh, monologue, theatrical shows with some movement and some audio and some visual elements, uh, and they both were well-received in my tiny little community and uh, got a little bit of press, and I was able to do them both for extended runs and uh, eventually brought them back to New York City for a month run. I'm going to take this opportunity, before I get to my point, to tell you about them, because they're never going to be reprised again. There's no good video of them, and I'm going to tell you about the second one. The second one I made was called Regrets Only, and in classic performance art funk, uh, fashion, it starts in, in the dark with an audio, scratchy audio recording of my mother uh, saying, I have no regrets, over and over. I have no regrets. Because my mother said that to me in conversation once when I was around, I don't know, 27 And at 27, I had so many regrets already that I was blown away that my mother could say she had no regrets. So I asked her to record that. uh, And and, and we recorded her saying that a few times. And eventually it became a performance piece called Regrets Only that was about regrets. And in the first half of the show, I talked about regrets and how astounded I was by my mother's lack of them. Although I, 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 I believe her. She really didn't. She had a lot of anger, um, a lot of love, <laughs> but not regrets. Uh, but I talked about the two different basic types of regrets, regrets of things that one has done, hurt somebody else, for example, and regrets of things that one hasn't done, 
bungee jump off an airplane, as I believe Will Smith is about to do for his 50th birthday. Seems like a horrible idea to me, but you go, Will. So I would do that for a few minutes, and after that, I would have the house lights come up, and I would ask if three people from the audience would like to come up, and there's a chair on stage, spotlight comes down on the chair, and tell us a regret. And amazingly, almost every night, I would get three people to come up. And it was a very risky, hit-and-miss kind of performance thing, because some of them were rather mundane. Some of the people were not, you know, good at being on stage. Some were amazing. Two that come to mind, uh, uh, this was in the in the uh, Bay Area, were one person who got up and he, he did, he rather openly, shamelessly said, uh, my biggest regret is having sold a house in, in the, in the Berkeley Hills in 1972, <laughs> because the real estate values had gone up a great deal. Uh, and that was a lighter one. And another one that really stands out to me now, decades later is a gentleman that was probably pushing 80 years old, white hair, got up, sat down, had a wonderful, deep, resonant voice, and told a long story about bullying a young man with a bunch of other kids when he was uh, in school and how he never got to make amends or, or apologize for that. And it was amazing. Anyway, the people would come up and do their regrets, and at the end of their regrets, that would end the first half, and there would be intermission. And the second half, I told the story of, at the time, I was in my late 20s, pushing towards 30. And I had always been petrified of, of anything, any uh, athletic activity that was, was involved rolling backwards. It, it started with the trauma of a horrible gym teacher forcing me to do backward somersaults, and it hurt my neck. And I think it made me cry in front of everybody else when I was a little kid. And after that, I was afraid of backward somersaults. I wouldn't do a back dive to pass from flying fish to shark in swim class. Anything about going backwards was, was very scary to me. So at around 27, I started to think that I've always wanted to do a standing backflip. For, I, I don't know why I would have such a masochistic desire because I hate it. But I always thought I have the physical ability to do it. I want to do a standing backflip. And I'm running out of time. My knees, I'm a basketball player. My knees are getting sore. I'm going to be 30 soon. Um, and so I went to the circus school in San Francisco, uh, up on Stanion Street, I believe, a Russian circus school. And I studied with a man named Yuri for six months who did not understand why I only wanted to learn to do this one trick instead of take a class or learn various things. But he trained me and got me in shape and got me to the point where on the nice safe mats in the gym, I could do a standing backflip. I would mostly do it spotted with someone holding my lower back and making sure I don't land on my head. But I could do it unspotted. So at the end of the show, I told that story. And at the end of the story, I would strip off my pants and have shorts underneath, put on sneakers, and call a spotter up to the stage. At the time, it was my, my then wife, or if she wasn't around, someone else. 
and they would spot me and I would do a standing backflip and take my bow and that would end the show. And it was, it was the best thing I have ever, I'm, I'm glad I didn't make any performance after that because it was a great ending and I don't think I could ever make anything better. It was, it was really, because uh, it was always scary for me. So it was always scary for the audience and having a spotter there actually made it clear that this was not me pretending it was still hard to do. It was psychologically always still hard to do. And one last digress digression before I get to the end of that and explain why I'm telling you all this is uh, that one night, uh, it was a Friday night, and there were maybe, I don't know, 15 reservations for the show. Pretty good. That means we would hope that 30 or so would show up. And it got to be quarter to eight, 10 to eight, five to eight. And like right at eight, one person shows up. And I was rather relieved because that was the day, for some reason, that I decided to do my practice backflip I always did before the show on the cement floor of the theater instead of on the stage. And I landed on my head. I didn't kill myself, but I had to walk around for a few minutes and I was freaked out. It, it hurt and it was scary. And I was like, I don't think I can do this tonight. And lo and behold, one guy shows up for the show and... That gave me a very easy excuse to come out and say, thank you for coming. We're going to post, we're not going to do the show tonight and we'll give you your money back. And I just stepped off the stage and chatted with the guy. And what I had found out right before I got on stage was that nobody had come because on that particular night, June 17th, 1994, OJ Simpson was driving uh, around in the back of a white Ford Bronco in the streets of LA and everybody was home watching TV. So our one guest and a few friends of mine and my wife went to the back uh, room of the theater and watched the OJ Bronco chase on TV. The last part of the story is that it just, it, it was a great experience to make these pieces and it was great to be able to bring them back to New York where I more or less grew up and went to college and to do them for a month. And I even got to, um, I had a publicist who got me on a, some kind of uh, NBC spinoff network that doesn't exist anymore that had like a daytime Ellenist show with a host that was something like a, a, a minor league John Tesh. And I got picked up in, in Manhattan in a limo and driven out to the studio in New Jersey and makeup and all that fun stuff. And I got to legitimately get up on a talk show and talk about my, my, my little performance art. Uh, sadly, I, I, I bet there's video of that somewhere. I don't own it. I'd love to see it. I'm sure I was such a nervous wreck. But the point is, I made these things. I spent, I don't know, five or six years making performance. I love doing it. I'd love to do it again. I'm not going to be doing any more backflips. And it was relatively legit. And for all that time, I, I, I think I consider it a success that I didn't lose more than probably $5,000 <laughs> creating my whole performance art career. And no performance art or monologist or anyone like that that I knew would ever have claimed to be a stand-up comic because we didn't put in the time and effort and the struggle in that world to succeed and so we wouldn't make something and call it stand-up. And to a large extent, Hannah Gatsby's Nanette has elements of performance art, elements of 
a TED Talk, if TED Talks weren't so afraid of anyone taking any stand on any real serious issue besides the fact that people don't drink, have water to drink where they should, any real political issue. But it has a ton of elements of stand-up, and Hannah Gatsby has earned her props and career as a stand-up. And so no douchebag like Norm MacDonald or some trolls on the internet should get to argue about whether her special, that's like a million male comic specials, is stand-up comedy or not. She's earned her whatever as a stand-up comic. Performance artists don't make any money. She gets to call it whatever the fuck she wants. It's an incredibly worthwhile hour. Check it out. Be prepared to laugh less as it goes along. Oh, one last thing. One of the douchebags on Twitter who responded to my insisting that it was irrelevant whether it was irrelevant to argue about whether it was stand-up comedy or not so cleverly tweeted, what joke from Nanette made you laugh the loudest? My answer in those first 17 minutes in which I laughed a lot out loud that the one that made me laugh the most is probably the cheesiest uh, because that's the kind of thing I like. It is when Hannah and her in her wonderful Australian accent that I can't uh, duplicate says uh, talks about hating the word being called madam. And then she says, madam, it's what my mother used to call me when I was in trouble for owning a brothel. My guest today in our third visit, he is becoming an annual guest is Hardy White. Hardy White does a weekly show on WFMU where he talks for an hour. He is the closest thing I have to a guru uh, for making radio, even though what I do is nothing like what he does. And I heartily encourage you, no pun intended, to self-effacing here. Even if you get tired of Hardy and me chatting, that's on me. Go to WFMU.org or find a podcast called Miracle Nutrition with Hardy White, H-E-A-R-T-Y White, and check out at least one episode all the way through. Hardy and I, after talking three times in these last three years, uh, didn't talk that much about fame, although we did talk about the internet, but I have a little list here of things that we did talk about. Timothy Leary. Sanity, rings that we wear on our fingers, ethics and morality, not having heroes, the attention economy, Black Stalin, Sundar Popo, and Chutney Music, Rockford Files, how he makes episodes of the show, which I always very tiptoe around because I don't want to ruin the magic for anyone, but he gives us a little hint of how it happens, and a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy it. Here is... Hardy White. Hello, Jamie. Hardy. Oh man. How are hey. you? So this is at least it's someone named Jamie. Yes, and and you sound like the person I'm expecting to speak to. Oh, good. Good. If we just sounded similar, but we weren't the same people, 
That'd be awesome, too, though. That's an episode of something. It, 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 well, it could be one of your uh, multiple universes. Yeah. Oh, it could still be. Mm-hmm. In a duplex. I, I thought I knew you. I thought I knew you. Turns out you're different, Jamie. Oh, that <laughs> happened to me. Man, I have to tell you this story before. I, can I just start talking? Let's do that. I, I, I have no, I've, I've written no notes for this conversation. I have to tell you a story. Yeah. And it's exceedingly embarrassing. Good. But at the same time, it's very funny. So this guy wanted to come visit me. He was coming through town, this listener. And his name was Alex. I won't tell you his last name. But the last name was familiar to me. And I went, oh, Alex. I think I know. That's Alex that I talked to in New Jersey. In fact, I think we got together and had breakfast when I was there a couple of years ago. Alex, of course. And uh, I saw him. I was Facebook friends with him. I saw a picture. I go, yeah, come on by, man. And we, he came by, and I said, good to see you again. And <laughs> you know where this is going. Uh, I, I, no, I can just tell it's, it's going to be awkward. It's kind of, it's horrible. And and uh, and we, we visited, and he left. And I said, man, it was so good to see you again. And he left. And then I realized, oh my God, there's two Alexes. And they look similar, and their last name—I kid you not. Let's say, let's say one of them is named Jason, like J A Y S O N, and the other Yajson, mm-hmm. like, like, <laughs> yeah, that similar. That's how similar their names are. And then they looked alike, right? But you'd never met Mr. Yajson. No, I hadn't. That was the first time. And I've been friends with, I had been Facebook friends with him, so I thought I knew like I thought I knew them both, and I had been confusing them for a long, long time, apparently. So it was just this one conflated person, right, with two really similar last names. So I mixing I was mixing their back their you know background and their stories and everything. And I don't know that those individuals know that I did that. I'm sure. The guy was like, man, Hardy has like a weird way of talking to people. I've been on both. I find this has happened. But uh, when people I've met, I'll meet them several times and they still won't remember me. And I get a little like, (laughs) you know, you think you're better than me or something. And uh, and I've totally done it to people. And I've been called out for it. It's like I was at your house at a party. And I was like, oh, dang it. You know, and I, I it's just sometimes things don't stick. I don't know what it is. I, I I went to school with somebody who years later I saw had a book out about having face blindness. And I thought, I didn't know anything about that. I thought she was just had an attitude. <laughs> Are you sure she's the person you thought? Oh, she, oh it, it was her because <laughs> when the book came out of it, we were all like, oh, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I thought about it for a minute. What I have is a lack of facial recognition of people out of the context that I know them in. Even if I know them pretty well, if I run into them, if they're, uh, if they're someone I see uh, as a bartender or as a doctor and I see them in the world uh, elsewhere, I won't recognize them. And there are even some people I know pretty well that I won't. And so I, I just try to tell people that as much as possible. And mine is, I have a two-faceted thing. That's one facet. And my worry about that is related to, I, I have terrible, and this is why I, I, I feel like one of the biggest keys to success is name recognition. 
is remembering to shake someone by the hand firmly and call them by their name when you see them. And I don't, I'm just terrible. And I see people approaching me and their name either flies out of my head or I, I'm like, okay, that's Cheryl, but what if I'm wrong? So I'm not going to say her name. It really, it, it's, it's discouraging that the key to success is basically blowing smoke up people's asses, but that's exactly what it is. They like to be, and you'll, you learn that when you're like how to win friends and make uh, influence people, right? It's always oh, to ask them about themselves because, because they're self-absorbed. Yes, everyone is. And likely if a person is your boss, they're especially narcissistic and self-absorbed. So getting them to talk about themselves is the key to success. So we reward, because we reward that personality disorder, like in generally in business, <laughs> it becomes like a key to success. Yeah. I'm generally fairly immune to flattery. I, I negate anything positive anyone says to me as they're saying it. But when they call me by my name a lot, mm -hmm. it works. I know. It does work. Hey, J Jamie, how are you? Jamie, I like what you've done. Jamie, I like what you've done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Are we going to kiss? We're going to kiss, aren't we? It really is. It's like, very oh hmm, really you like me and I fall for it too I, I you can't not I mean I I would buy it, car sale like I was just talking that the other day with a friend about how people think they're immune to like really basic car sales techniques or just sales techniques the, but my 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 grandfather used to fall for this combination of my grandfather was born in 1906 and he would fall for this combination of, 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 of a guy who was sort of like this combination of blustery and flattering. So they would, you know, they would, you know, Lou, tell me about yourself. And then they'd tell some outrageous story about, you know, I, I once, you know, hunted a rhino or something. I bet you're in business too, aren't you? That kind of like, I'm cool. And now you're, I'm, I'm going to be friends with you and always fell for that. You know, and uh, I'm sure there's something like that that I fall for. Well, do you do you think you know what it is? Oh, just the smallest bit of flattery. I w I was in a bar one time with a uh, a guy. With, I I was recording bands and I was hanging out with a punk uh, ska punk band, and they were great. And they um, and I was talking to the bass player. It was really prickly, wonderfully prickly dude. Like one of these really frank. I love people who just absolutely. Honest. It's probably brain. It's probably a brain problem, but it's really lovely, you know, because he was good and loyal person, uh, but just didn't really sugarcoat anything. And I said, "Man, Ben, I like you." And he goes, "You like me because I like you." And it's like, "Wow, we're trapped in this weird tautology," you know. <laughs> I don't. It's just like, where did it start? You're absolutely right. I like you because you like me. Yeah, yeah, because I think you probably also have had the experience where that. There people who like me too quickly, it's it's the the old you know someone who'd have me for a member in their club that quickly, I don't like. <laughs> I'm like you've got bad taste. Well, entertaining and stuff that's what's like you know because people get really intimate really close to you quickly. It's one sided, so they get to experience you know they're listening to you or something. And then, you know, you don't know that they've burned out on you <laughs> or that, or you've said something that, you know, and your, your relationship is just run the gamut without your presence <laughs> and, and you're sort of responsible for it, but you know, uh, you weren't there. And I, I remember reading something by, uh, some sage or something said, you should treat all compliments and criticism the same. 
you know? And I was like, well, yeah, probably, because they don't know. Basically, people flattering you and people criticizing you have equal lack of real information. But again, that's that's nonsense because, uh, you know, you don't do anything in a vacuum. You do it, uh, it's an evidence of whether you've successfully communicated or not. If people say, I mean, a lot of people say, oh, you suck, you suck. Well, you, you have to sort of listen, right? Because <laughs> you say, well, maybe I should try harder or do this or... So you can't really treat it the same. Do you get much negative feedback? The only kind of negative things I've had in the past are people that have problems, uh, right? People, uh, two kinds of things. One, people are uh, write you a lot and then maybe get angry with you about something perceived that isn't there, right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and then, so there's that nothing. I really say anything, just that kind of like, uh, like that scene in, um, King of comedy or whatever, when she, he doesn't sign the lady's autograph there, she's flattering him and she goes, you should get cancer. You know, that kind of like you get just feelings hurt. So I think I've hurt people's feelings a couple of times. And then I've had people seriously mentally ill that think you're angry with you because you're stealing their thoughts. Oh, really? Yeah. And then you sort of have like guilt. You go, well, maybe, maybe I have been somehow. (laughs) (laughs) I really was thinking that. I was like, I mean, like, is the zeitgeist their thoughts? Because a lot of things I say are just because they're common or derivative or anything. I mean, am I really like, maybe that is their, I mean, maybe they're hooked up in in a more literal way or something to the, to the hive mind that I realize and I have sort of ripped them off. I don't know. That's, that's a weird feeling, right? Yeah, I guess it's kind of the converse of of having your, your someone else have the same thought that you have and have great get, get a bunch of attention for it, but you can't ever claim that thought because they said it first in public. Yeah, and it wasn't yours. No, no, but uh, you feel like it was. I mean, that's the way with music a lot. You know, you think, oh gosh, the you know, Zeppelin ripping off all the old blues guys or something. But it's just somebody else would have. People can't resist it. White people can't resist stealing it. It's just sitting there. Well, you know, it's just sitting there. It's right there in their yard. They would have put a fence around it if they didn't want somebody to take it. I I, I, I still get a little, it's a little weird. Like, I don't know, you can't always make the same argument you can about, well, musicians borrow and uh, and take things. But, you know, this is is different with uh, the music of uh, Africans in North America. <laughs> There's totally different circumstances, and the music means a totally different thing. And I think anytime you take that that from somebody, it's like taking the only thing... That ha- I'm going to take all your things, and then, what's that you're singing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. I want that too. It's really nasty. Right, it's the worst kind of of taking, and uh, so I do have. I don't. I can't cut it a lot of slack. It's it still rubs me the wrong way. Once my eyes got open to it, I thought, I don't know, man. Elvis is kind of he, you know, he's a hero. He's a hero to the, most. the most. I was thinking you were going to say. Yeah, but really, you can't go back and go. Oh yeah, but no. Not at all, but no, it's like, you know, oh, never mind. I'm not going to go in. We're on the same page. Yeah. One of my favorite intros to your show that I I don't, there's no reason you would remember it the way I do is when you, you, 
Oh, did you accidentally or on purpose? You, you said, let me, uh, you, you, you quote you in the very first moment of a show quoted Public Enemy once. Did I? It was like, let, join us, please, in welcoming. I, I welcoming. Said, yeah. Yes, I did say that. Yeah. Um, I noticed you slipped. Every now and then, I feel like you, you feel this. You, you feel a need to show that you're down with the kids of today, or at least of five no, years ago. I'm down with the kids of the you, '90s. You slipped Feral Monk <laughs> in there in there a couple weeks ago. Well, I'm just a fan. I like get. I get upset. I, I'm a. I get fanny. Not fanny. That's yeah. not a word. Fanny. <laughs> well, it is. It means something else. It is fanny. I know. When I say it to my British friends, they're like, "You realize what that is?" I go, "I don't care. It doesn't matter." So, uh, uh, but I get really into uh, an artist sometimes. I get really excited, and I'll listen, 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 listen. Um, and that's when my, my my tastes are all over the place because I just get, I'll get fixated on something, and uh, get really, really into it. But I remember Public Enemy was a big. Uh, game changer and then when I first heard them and then I went to see them oh. and Flavor Flav didn't show up. Oh really? And Chuck D gave out his phone number. Yeah, I assume you listen to as an editor when the show's done, but do you ever listen back to a show, an older show? No. I ha I I sometimes I do if people ask me like, do you remember when you said you said something about earwigs? And I go, oh, that was a bunch of times. Like it was ear, ear earwigs, but then you also said something about I don't know Caesar. So I'll go, I'll go, oh man, why did you do this to me? And I'll then I'll go like try to listen and find, but I never, I never just sit down and listen to one. Here's my. Uh, this is what I think about my radio show, and one of the reasons I don't listen to it is, is I think I, I'm. I think I consider it disposable, and I don't know that I'm really for making any kind of permanent record of it. I mean, radio never used to necessarily be like that. We're spoiled now. We have recordings of things, but it used to be like a, a show. You listen to a show on the radio. It went by, and there it went. There's no real way of, of especially if it was live or anything, capturing it again, getting it back. It's gone forever, and uh, if things are long form, sometimes that's really a good thing because the memories are often better than the actual thing was. I remember uh, I was listening to somebody turned me on to Gene Shepard yeah. and I went and I found some recordings. I listened to some Gene Shepard and that guy could talk for a long time, really in a captivating way without taking a break. It was really, really awesome. But I read later that he didn't want any of those shows kept. He went on and wrote books you know, and that was a different thing, right? The books. I don't think he thought of those shows as being something that needed to be preserved or should be. It's the sort of magic you're doing. And if you go back and listen to it, it's the, on closer examination, maybe it's not, you know, perfect. <laughs> and it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be a book. You know, it's not meant to be a play or a poem or something that's imprinted forever and put into a library it's meant to be fleeting i think it's harder and harder to look at things that way when we do capture everything so easily these days and it doesn't take up any space and you don't have to get it developed you know in paper printing of a photo but now especially with my most recent phone i don't know where everything is stored but it never seems to run out of memory anymore so i take so many pictures sometimes that I'm, i i can't possibly go back and look at them 
No, no, you never, you never will go back and look at them because everything is precious. You know, it's like if uh, then so nothing is, and and you know, there's oh here's all the precious moments, all one billion of them. Well, then they're all, <laughs> that's yeah. your special moments. Is you can't like if you look at the end of your life and I say I want to just go back and look at some special memories and photographs. All right, me ma, here you go. Here's volume one. <laughs> You know, and then we've got, how many got? I got 6,000 of them. Basically, we took a picture every every hour or so for 80 years, and you're going to go through them all. You know, it's I, that's kind of strange. I don't really want things that well documented. I like my fuzzy memory. My, my fuzzy memory is like, is, is like analog, you know, or it's just like it's low res. I like it. Everybody looks sexy because of, of oh, not all the lights getting through, right? It's all fuzzy. And a weird inside-out converse aspect of this is things that are captured. Um, my uh, last guest, I don't know if it'll be the last guest by the time this is aired, but uh, Sarah Wisby is a writer, and, and she has a friend who wrote a memoir, and Sarah was in the memoir, and they weren't friends when the memoir was written. And, and, uh, uh, and the things that are in the memoirs, so I was like, yeah, that, oh, they, they're kind of, they were kind of true then. But uh, the author who wrote, uh, Michelle T., who wrote the memoir, talked to Sarah at one point about the, the, fr the frustrating thing about writing a memoir is that you're stuck with those memories, that you, the way you wrote them down being the, the truth. Oh, you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas in your mind, the truth changes. And it's a little more fle flexible, and you remember things differently at different times. But what you put in the book, you've got to stand behind. Oh, yeah, and that's horrifying. Because I've changed. I, that's why also reading your writing from, from especially if you were young, when you were younger, is really, oh, you go, oh my gosh, I knew I was, was going to grow. You know, you think of Kafka going, I want everything burned. And they go, oh, yeah, sure, right, okay. I go, no, really, I want this all destroyed. Yeah, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And they didn't, you know, a lot of a lot of Kafka stuff. And, uh, you know, I read it and I go, oh, this isn't really done. And and I feel bad. I feel, I feel bad for Kafka because I, I just probably think that's not my, you know, my best crafted thing. That's not really what I wanted. And they've put out everything, everything he ever pooped on a piece of paper has been now published, you know, but he really didn't want a lot of it published and it isn't done you know there's some things that have neat ideas that don't go anywhere and uh you know maybe that even his at his worst he's worth preserving but i'm sure i'm not i know i'm pretty sure i'm not yeah at my worst definitely not how do you craft an episode a show oh thank you for asking i will now make something up <laughs> Uh, uh, variety of ways, but it always comes down to doing it a certain, having a certain method and the method is not doing anything at all and sort of waiting. Um, and I, this is exactly how they tell you not to do things, by the way, they always say, just sit down and start right. Don't wait for inspiration. Yeah, that's fine. That's one way. And that's, and I've done it that way. Sometimes you have to sit down, write every day. Don't wait for inspiration. You know, that, that's, that's all right. Um, sometimes I'm looking for a state of mind and to get into a state of mind, I have to have 
a sort of big idea because a lot of this show won't be written. And so if I'm going to say something, you know, mildly interesting for an hour, it has to be an idea that's large enough that I can explore it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And it has to have a lot of facets or a lot of ways of, of saying it. And uh, sometimes they'll come in a flash, like it'll be one thing, and sometimes it'll be a bunch of things that stick together. For instance, for tomorrow's show, it was this. This is how stupid it was. I took off a ring. Like I don't often wear rings, but I just I found one and I I put it on. It's not very expensive. Put it down, and I thought I started thinking about rings, and I thought maybe Lord of the Rings <laughs> is actually a literal story about how fucking burdensome rings are. You know, just as a thing to own, it's like, God dang it. Like, it's like, you've inherited this ring. I don't want it. Ah. Right? Because now it's valuable. People want to steal it from me. It's, you know how much this is worth? Tens of thousands of dollars. Oh, no, no, no. I don't want it. Well, you, you have it now. You're the next owner. And it's it's a burden. You don't want it. So can I, what do I have to do? Well, the only way to do it is destroy it. And to do that, you have to go to, I don't know, wherever they make Jewelry, uh, Geneva, or Mount Doom, or something. Yeah, or yeah. Mount Doom, <laughs> yeah. whatever. Right, and throw it in. Yeah, in throw the, it into, in the, Gene- into Lake Geneva in the furnace. <laughs> and they do that. They'll um, and you'll see nowadays they just go. On, you'll say we buy gold, and you can just go down there and sell it, and they'll do it for you. And it's really just the Fellowship of the Ring down there that's melting it down for you and get rid of it. But no, it was that simple. So I thought about that. But then that led to a lot of other things because, I mean, recently I've been thinking about family and and, and other kinds of inheritance, you know, uh, ethical inheritance, why we, we are the way we are, things we've gotten from our ancestors. We don't even know who they are and uh, ways of doing things, thinking and uh, those kind of inheritances and so it wasn't a, a leap to start thinking about literal ones. Mm-hmm. Ethical inheritance meaning value systems? And... Yeah, value systems, but not even ones you're conscious of. Like you think, oh, there's organized ones like your religion and all. But, you know, your family traditions and all of your inheritance too and, and, and just small ways of doing things. You know, either peeling a potato even. That's just, just small cultural things, but then bigger things, you know, how you treat people or or manners or whatever, just – and all your values, and those are passed on too, right? You know, usually kindness is inherited. I mean, it can be interrupted, that line, you know, badly. People inherit their, their crappiness too. When, when I think about having a conversation with you, I, 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 I resist. There's so much magic uh, involved in the show uh, that I am both curious about, but then I don't want to ask. The dialogue... That often starts. I I assume is written. Some is written. Some is. If it isn't written, you're 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 a wizard. <laughs> a, lo- a large a large percent is written now. A large percent is written. A lot. You know, it depends on what the thing is. And you can tell. You can tell when I'm not writing it. When I'm writing it, I think you can tell when I'm speaking off the top of my head. Sort of, if you can. I mean, I've done shows. That I want it to sound written. Right. I remember we've talked about that when you you would read the storybook, yeah, as if you were reading to your your your, your nephew. The re- a lot of times the reason that di- that things have to be written with um, more than one voice is just for practical reasons too. I, I want I I don't want I want the the experience to be 
for the listener to be nice <laughs> and, and intelligible. And when you're switching voices, there's a lot that, I mean, uh, the lot can go wrong and uh, you sort of sometimes need to take a, a breath between them uh, just to because ch- you're changing the, the uh, you know, they have a different resonance or something or different pitch and everything. You have to stop and start. And it's nice to be able to mechanically take away those pauses. Sure. <laughs> the way they do on cartoons and everything. So it just sounds like bam, bam, bam. And uh, that way you can make mistakes too. I do that. I do that in here because especially in my intros and outros, I am, I, I took the uh, one piece of, of hmm, clever, non-critical, uh, uh, not backhanded criticism, but uh, but one guest snuck in. Uh, uh, I, I'm always thrilled when someone, uh, Jonathan Katz uh, mm-hmm. of Dr. Katz, the the animated show that used to be I remember on. well. Yeah. Oh, very well, yeah. He, he is someone who pauses a great deal. And he said to me, he actually went and listened to a couple of episodes before he spoke to me. And he said, you... You outdo me as the master of the long pause. And I took that as a note. It's weird on radio. I'm, in fact, uh, there's been things uh, like when something goes wrong, when there's a technical problem on the show, sometimes I'll send a recording, right? And uh, every once in a while, there's something technically that, that will happen. And they're never sure whether I've done it on purpose. Like, you know, it's like, Wow, is Hardy just taking a really long pause? That must be tricky. Or has the tape stopped? You know, it is tricky. Or it's like, has that line repeated again, or did it just skip? Or and that, you know, that's happened a couple times. Where I go, no, I didn't. You know, that isn't that isn't a time loop. That something's wrong with the CD or whatever. Uh, when you were saying earlier, it must be clear when I write and don't. It isn't. That's that's the beauty of it. You can take the comment or not. Is it? Is it? It's just me trying to figure it out. Uh, and then there are things like towards the end of the show, <laughs> your nephew often shows up, but I don't know that you know he's going to show up. I don't always know he's going to show up. It's because I was I. What I want to do is I think well I might as well this voice in, this voice in my head I might as well say out loud. And I'll have to say it as somebody who isn't me, so people know it's it's a there's another voice in my head going, no, you don't, you know. And we all have that, right? I, every time you say something, really, there's a lot of times it's a voice going, you liar. And I have that. I just say it out loud a lot. And then if you if you do that, you realize you go, how do I how do I even get through the day? I mean, I walk around just a just a bundle of contradictions, and I'm having arguments with myself, and I'm like, you know. Uh, Gollum and and Smeagol, you know, just I'm I'm conflicted and I'm uh, I'm arguing. I'm like conjoined twins, and they don't like each other, and they have different morals. And but I kind of feel both like the very healthy person and the sociopath have less of the little nephew saying you're an asshole. Right. Well, I mean, I, the, what's healthy, healthy and sociopath or normal and abnormal and, you know, really in evolution, whatever works, right? I mean, you know, for a species that's, uh, you look at another species or something, for their brain to be successful and work the way it does, given what their, their strategy right now, they could be nuts, right? And you look at other creatures and some of them go, wow, that, that creature is behaving like a, a murderous psychopath. 
Yeah, that's working out great, isn't it? That's exactly what they're supposed to be. And uh, that's what when we when we look at ourselves, you know, there's a certain uh, survivorship bias with everything. You know, you got you're here because you're here. What's you know, the way we think is healthy or normal is just healthy and normal just because it is. Um, but there is other ways of thinking and, and there is slightly different ways where the brains work. And there's I mean, I'm, you know, these things are weird to think about, but. You know, there really are different ways of thinking. And I think people got, uh, when we started to think about more things in the 60s, people got a little carried away, right? Because they did come to the idea, well, what's what's crazy, right? All these things that we saw, man, all the doctors and stuff were saying this is crazy. Maybe it's not crazy. Well, yeah, they're on to something a little bit there. You know, that's, tr that's true a little bit. Uh, but um, also, you know, there's 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 problems with that kind of crazy, and there's suffering associated with it uh, sometimes. You're thinking more of people like Timothy Leary and dropping out and saying, "What is reality?" Yeah, yeah, Timothy Timothy Leary, and, and uh, I think a lot of people thought like that. You know, that were trying to expand their 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 thinking about uh, morality and 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 things that were relative, culturally relative and everything is the more you learn about other cultures, you really go, Oh, hmm. I mean, that's, you know, does, it's not really abnormal for them. And so you start uh, thinking about it. those are all good things to think. Somehow thinking about that made me think that, that, that there are those who did go that direction. And then there are people more like, this is my, my weak segue into Jim Rockford. It's a pra we crave that pragmatism. Like we get too far into the like we love philosophy, and I love to be wishy-washy, right? And I love to be relative. But there's some sort of black and white. There's some sort of uh, uh, you know lovely uh, decisiveness. Um, and you could, you know, he is a clear moral character. You know, he's not, despite what they want to say, he's not really, con, he's not really a con man at all. You know, he's he was in prison unjustly, and he's trying to help people. He's not making money at it. He doesn't want to be a hero. Uh, I think of him as kind of like a modern day Marlowe, uh, Raymond Chandler's Marlowe. He, he is. What's hilarious? That's that's exactly true. But modern here's day. What's, <laughs> it's not modern day anymore, but. I know, but they thought they were breaking the mold. Like if you hear interviews with them, well, we were doing a detective uh, different, one that doesn't want to be a hero, a guy living in a trailer who's just getting hit on the head. I'm thinking that's every, yeah. gosh, that sounds like Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett, Hammett and all that yeah. kind of stuff. That was, That's exactly what that was, I thought, all those pulp stuff. So he's very much in the genre. Yeah, it's a, it's a good show. Yeah, I, I, you've kind of, you put me in a tough position where, I found one on YouTube that is full screen. It's I, I mentioned it to you. Uh, it's the one with uh, uh, what's her name who had the show with Robert Wagner. Oh right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned uh, the episode for me. It just escapes yeah, me. Yeah. Season two. Yeah, it's season two, and and she's yeah, a, she's, on she's, a, she's a detective too. And that's what I was going to ask you because what's not fair is you've got me really wanting to watch a bunch of Rockford Files, and they are not streaming anywhere right now. I gotta buy the gotta buy them. You gotta get them on the DVD. But I always think maybe I don't know. Maybe it goes to James Garner's children or something. It probably does. It might because you know he sued. Um, 
He's one of the first people to sue to get uh, profits from the TV show. They didn't give them to anybody. Huh. I think it was Universal would just take them all, never gave anybody any profits from the shows. And I think he was one of the first to sue. The writing's really fun and funny and, and you know, it's pretty pretty good stuff. And, you know, got like some really strong women, uh, you know, uh, involved with it and uh, women writers and everything. And I, I think it gives it a good, you know, non-creepy flavor. Too. His, his agent, uh, Mita Rosenberg, is that her name? Mita Rosenberg, I think. So that was his agent back in the day when an agent could be a producer. So she's, she's his agent and the executive producer on the show. And she's like directing. And she's not really direct, you know, it's like, wow, yeah, she was an awesome person. Got to go look at the interviews of her. And then there's a woman whose name, I'm blanking on her last name, Juanita something. She was a writer for the show, and she wrote some really good episodes. She was also a script consultant. And uh, and she's, man, absolutely crackerjack writer. That is so fascinating because when I went back and watched this one episode, I was – I was surprised that this this woman character had so much agency, and there's one point where he, you know, kind of traditionally he's leading her by the elbow through the dangerous room, and I was like, that's the only time I really caught when it was like, oh, yeah, that wouldn't be done that way today, maybe. Right. But yeah. in general, she was she was his equal, uh, in 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 humor and 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 in in punchlines and in you know being the smart one and. Uh, Rockford Files, everybody. Find a way to watch it. There are a bunch on YouTube that someone has gotten away with the copyright thing by making it only be a quarter of the screen. Oh, I'm sorry. Holy fuck. I can't do it. Oh. I can't do it. And it's, and it's like foggy. I, I know. I can't they, do they it. him so bad that no one is going to pursue him. No, because a lot of the – I like watching it for um, – for some of the cars and clothes and everything, and I got to be able to see him. Oh yeah. I was what? What was it? I started watching for the clothes. Get smart. <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> I just turned the sound off, and I was just like, "Yeah, wow, that looks cool. I like those clothes." Not like those kids today. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I like things. That, yeah, they're, they're taking some. They. I like when fashion takes chances, though. I don't mind that at all. Like when it just pushes limits until you go, oh no, that's that's too big a collar, or no, your lapel is now too big, your that, that tie is now too thick. That's but I love it. I love getting there. It's like, is this? I don't know. Almost. How about this? I like that. That's what we're supposed to do. Can't find out where it is unless you push it. And then the ties got extremely narrow. Yeah, and then we don't want to go that way either. Speaking of narrow ties, you've been playing music. I have, I have. I've been playing music with friends. I love it. I can see why people do it. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. That's good. What, what kind of music? Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I keep going back and forth. It's not even a lie. Like I'll get you get in the mood to go. Okay, now everybody turn. I want you to turn everybody turn way down. We're going to be playing. I'm tired of this loud stuff. And then the next day I'll go. Okay, we're going to be doing sort of like a speed metal version of everything. I just can't. I can't settle on anything. It actually feels a little bit cynical to do that too, to play in it, because I just get I I get in crazy moods, and I just want to you know. So I don't know. I think it'd be I'd make a, a, a it would be a lousy band because you'd hire it and you wouldn't know what you were getting. So you're just you're just messing around right now. You're not playing out. I mean, uh, I we I, we played 
I, we played a show. <laughs> Did we play two? We played one show. We played uh, a gig, which was not. I forgot how lovely it was to like to to drive and then have to unload your stuff. And I forgot how much fun that was. <laughs> it must be even less charming than it was thirty years ago. Yeah, because now you're like, well, I'm not exactly sure where I'm doing this. But it is it is fun. I have more of a sense now of, of entertaining <clears throat> and less of a sense of entitlement. Like, so if I did play something, I'd be like, well, what do you what do you need? How long do you need the music? Well, I have much more sense of like uh, uh, of entertaining people rather than like, you know, come see my my music. So groundbreaking. It's amazing. You're going to stand there. And it's just, I know you're at a bar, but it's going to be more like a concert where you're listening carefully as if it were Stravinsky. It's not Stravinsky, though. I rent a shared office space, so you just go in and work, and there are people all over. But it's in the building that's a, that's a performance space. And so I'll hear the people who run it are people I know, and I'll hear these, they're these two young brothers. They're, they're not that young. They're just young to me. They're probably around 30. And they'll have meetings with people who want to put on events. And I, about a, a year ago, got out of being a co-owner of a, of, a, of, a, of a bar restaurant and place where there was live music and stuff at night. And there's nothing I miss less than booking and having to deal with, a sp- no, every age of person <laughs> who, who, has, who wants to put on a show and has all these, these needs. There was one group who time in and time out were the lowest maintenance and they promoted their stuff and they got people out there and they were super polite. It was metal bands. <laughs> it, and it was usually young. Yeah. I didn't know any old men and they were so it's like they were compensating for the perception and they were like, what do you need? How long do you want us to play? Do you want us to make posters? Do you want us to make flyers? Do you want, and you know, how can we tell if we're being too loud? And I just, Literally over 10 years, time and time again, they never, and I, I still didn't book much metal because it's too loud for our little space, but they were, they were super easy. And they, you know, you do see some older musicians come, come to that, that realization that, that they're collaborating with the person who owns or runs the space. But a lot of younger artists just don't, but the young metal guys always did. I have a pop music question for you. In in our and since last we spoke about a year and a half ago, a lot of people that we grew up listening to died. They did. Uh, Leonard Cohen, George Michael, David Bowie, I know. Tom Petty. You're from Florida. I know that was huge. What is the friend. biggest? Uh, who else? Who am I? I'm leaving out like three people. Prince. No, Prince died. Oh, that was huge. Yeah, yeah. Which, right? The second strikes you the most, and. I, I don't, you know, I don't know that any of them. I mean, I was shot when Tom Petty died. I got my job dropped. That was I was just so unexpected for me. You know, I guess I just hadn't thought about it. Well, Tom Petty just it. doesn't die. It just doesn't. It seems like yeah, that didn't seem right. And I don't. And I don't really know anybody that knows him or anything. But I mean, uh, just with the Florida thing, it's kind of strong. And uh, I know a lot of people that were really, 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 really influenced by him. And so that felt that felt like, uh, you know, um, that felt like a big one. Um, Prince was uh, I mean, it was sort of life changing as far as just the way you do it. For I, I mean, if somebody was in a band at the time watching him, I was like, man, that is nobody's doing it better. Nobody does that better. 
So, you know, this guy's he's doing everything just absolutely right. Right. He's killing it. He's a great musician, great performer. Just everything about it is beautiful, perfect. Um, so that was big, you know, and um, but I've never been I've never been much of one that I've never been. a uh, I've never had heroes, really. I guess maybe it comes from having like being like a fatherless kid or something. I'm like, I just not. I just don't have hero. Like I don't look up. I mean, I admire people, right? But they're just they're just people, and I, I'm not really like nobody's sort of a hero to me. Is that bad? No. Am I missing out on anything? Uh, you know, the people that I that I do know are always going to be more important to me, and I would, and I can see how people do have these really intense relationships with artists and writers and people they admire. But I just have never had that. I did have a, a kind of a, an, a, a, a gestalty epiphany-ish, whatever the word is, moment this year when um, I've had the great pleasure and honor of having of talking to David Tadaris on the phone a couple times for this show, and to me, he's he's just I, his yeah he he's one of those people who I don't have to write because he does the writing. Yeah, you know, he does one of the forms of writing that I would want to do perfectly. So I don't need to, I don't need to write. Um, but after the second time he was headed this way. So we made an appointment to have a cup of coffee and somewhere in the middle of the cup of coffee, I guess I do think of people as heroes because somewhere in the middle of this, I, I, I said to, I thought to myself, why have I created such a gulf between this person and myself? I guess it was a very, a fairly egocentric moment in a way, but it was also just like, oh, he's just someone who does a thing really well that I like. He, he is, but this, I don't mean this, I don't mean this in the wrong way, but you're not equals in a lot of ways. And that's what you perceive. And that's what my problem is with people that are, have a great deal of celebrity or renown or something. You're with them. And, you know, maybe people recognize them and all that. And that, and nobody does that to me. So we don't have that shared experience. And you've got something in your life that's it's different. And, I'm, I'm, and, and we're just, we're, you know, you're just a person. But that person, the fact that they're having that life kind of makes a gulf between us. Because I, I don't know what that's like. Absolutely true. I think in that moment, though, for me, the point was that I've always made the gulf bigger. Yeah, well, you can't not is what my, I mean, don't blame yourself. You you can't not because, you know, what are you going to, I mean, let's say, okay, you get this, uh, let's say you're talking to a celebrity world traveler and the person has met some of the greatest minds and intellectuals and talents, all right, that are alive today. And then they come to my, let's say they come to Lexington, Kentucky. Right? Wait, a, do you have a particular, do you have someone? No, but let's say that person exists and they're going to come. Because I've already, I've already heard the Ted Turner story and Jane Fonda. No, I have no, <laughs> no, I'm out of celebrity. That's what I'm saying. I'm done. No, I'm just saying, uh, like, and let's say that person comes to Lexington, right? And I'm going to, I'm going to take them out for a beer. Right. Well, I mean, what am I going to talk to them about? Like, uh, you know, I'm really, th I'm thinking about redoing the laundry room. They don't want to hear that crap. They've heard wonderful, <laughs> interesting things from people. So, you know, I, I can't expect them to really be interested in the same things I am. And I will be self-conscious because, you know, why would I talk to them about this stuff that clearly is not what, what they're into, right? Disagreeing with you a little bit about the thing about going out 
for a drink with the person is I think they'd rather talk about redecorating the laundry room than about... I'm not sure. I guess it depends on the person, right? If every day you're getting up and you're doing something that's sort of tangentially related to your dream, that is, that's close and that's close enough. I think those are those are great great words that we we don't live in a society that encourages that that uh, that attitude, young man. No, well, that's okay because discontent is so important to our economic system, and so you you must feel at your core a certain emptiness because our entire economic system is is revolves around filling that. If you don't have it, you're useless. You're outside of the system. You're no good. And you see people that don't, they're, little, they're a joke, and we do features on them on the news. This fellow's decided to go out in the woods and live. <laughs> what kind of nut is he? Right? And we all look at them like oddballs and everything. So you can't possibly be fulfilled. You must have mental illness. And, and, and is, you know, and so, but we are mentally ill because we feel like, oh, we can't possibly get, I just ate. I'm still hungry somehow. I have everything I need, but I need more somehow. I'm wearing clothes, but I need a shirt. So, you know, it's just, it's bizarre. And that, that's nuts. But at least that's, that's, you know, this nuts that's sustaining us. So we don't even have a choice. We can't, you can't even, if I wanted to fill myself up, like I said, I'd be, uh, I'd be some eccentric. Well, I, <laughs> I might be the guy <laughs> a little bit. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You might, you might, uh, and, and I was going to say that then, you know, that then we go out and we, we buy more objects and we imbue them with ghostly powers and we keep them forever. But what I think is different from to, to, today from 20 or 30 or 40 years ago is that people are less attached to the objects and more attached to the attention. We don't buy CDs or records or cassettes or even books anymore. We want to be on, we want to be a YouTube star. Or we want to have a picture of ours. It's more, you know, because we don't. Uh, yeah, I think it's in a way less materialistic, but not better. No, it's not. This bab, like I think about this a lot. I talk to you about it. You're not there, but I talk to you about it a lot. That's good. I do about this attention economy, and that is really mysterious to me. I don't, I don't understand it completely, and I think that. When people that were brought up with the internet have a different idea of um, their identity um, or or their their mind's separateness from others, like I really think they feel weirdly connect, like biologically connected to the internet in a way I don't. Mm-hmm. Like it's sort of this thing you plug into. It's an it's a it's a world. It's real. Well, I, I find it funny because, yeah, it's like, look at me, look at me. Everybody looks at you and you don't know what to do. And 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 people do – it's a big joke on Twitter. You know, you get like – you get, uh, you know, 20,000 uh, uh, retweets and you go, oh, check out my SoundCloud. And, <laughs> you know, it's an yeah. o- ongoing joke. And uh, But, you like, you should have something ready when this popularity hits. Like – and that's the thing, you know, it's like we got – suddenly 20,000 people know who you are. You got something ready to sell them. And it's uh, uh, and I guess the attention economy is sort of fueled by this thing in the background that there's always somebody once you're fully wonderfully commodified and you have a number attached to you like 300 million people or something, then 
that's kind of the worth. It's like in video, like when you earn something in a video game, it's virtual. You know, it's like I got I got 120 of these jewels. You know, what are, what are they good for? I can buy costumes for a little cartoon character. <laughs> it's weird, right? It's just the it's not a thing you can really get, but it's still an economy. And uh, um, I'll never fully understand that. But but in a sense, people are saying you better have something ready. If you're trying to succeed in that world, you better have something ready because you've got like 12 hours. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know what to keep. What do you keep giving people? Well, when, you're, when your tweet's a hit, you better have your SoundCloud loaded with, with your beats. And circling back to what you said before about, uh, uh, what's his name? The radio storyteller, who my father used to tell me about, too. Uh, Gene Shepard. Gene Shepard. Is that if you missed the real Bob Newhart, the one in Minneapolis, set in Minneapolis, if you missed it, you didn't even have it on VCR. No. You had to wait for a rerun someday. Do you know what? I, this is a, I just had this thought the other day because, uh, no, I had this thought today because I saw something about Mork and Mindy. When Mork and Mindy came on, I watched that first episode with a pen and a paper, and I wrote down the catchphrases as he said them so I could remember them. You know, Nanu, I wrote down Nanu, Nanu. Yeah. And I wrote about like Zazbot or I don't know. Shazbot. Shazbot or whatever, right? I wrote all that stuff down. And uh, because the next day I had to, at school, I wanted to make sure I got it all right because we were never going to, we were not going to see that again until there was like a rerun or something. And the same with like the, when you'd see uh, uh, Monty Python or something, you know, see those, you go, oh, what was that? It's no way to just go and, and watch it again and again. It was this special thing that went by, and there it was gone. I bet you killed it at school the next day, though. Oh, yeah. They were all like, man, yeah, nanny, nanny. What's he say again? This is nanny, nanny. Yeah, man, he knows. Yeah, it makes you feel popular. Well, it feels like a moment. Uh... It does, but I want to say one last thing. Do you like... Um, hidden things, secret information, gatekeepers. Would you rather culture and music and art have an aspect about it of mystery, something like uh, there used to be where there's sort of priests of culture, people, arbiters, people telling you what was good and, and um, uh, that kind of thing? Or do you like this uh, sort of uh, Mad Max anarchy that we have now of um, a certain equality that if my thing's on SoundCloud and it's recorded with the same stuff that yours is that, you know, there's a level playing field now. And, and uh, do you have a preference? I immediately go to, to, to music and to my, my little new waiver peak of my fandom and, and love of music and, I did love, I liked gatekeepers like a Robert Criscow to tell me and for me to disagree with sometimes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and these days, I want to, I, I miss people to trust because there's way too much for me to try to find the best stuff. The stuff that I'm really going to like. I want someone who knows what I like and to tell me and that's hard to find. And I hate to feel like, like once a year I listen to the, the I feel kind of gross when the npr 
end of year music. Uh, I listen to the NPR music show only at the end of the year when they have they got the readers poll and they got the critics poll. And I don't always agree, but it's like, oh, there's this John Misty person. Uh, and I guess I do I do need a little bit of that or I just feel like I'm missing so much. and I don't know what it's so much coming at you. So I guess I guess I like it. But that's a, that's because you're approaching it with the old way of listening. It's sort of waiting um, for lo- going looking for like, oh, what's new? What's cool? What's new? What's good? And when another way to do it would be is there's such a, a flood of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You could just literally just stand in one place and just wait for something to hit you. And it will probably be good. Like, I don't really go looking for good music. And, and I just, it sort of falls in my lap. Sometimes it's stuff other people like, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's something other people's heard of. Sometimes it isn't, but there's so much that you could just, you could put your friend's band's album on. I mean, I listen, I have, there's a, I listen to a local band more than I listen to other stuff. And I think it partially it's because I know them and I go to the live shows. And so I like the, the songs I hear all the time and I hum them and I think they're great. So I listen to that stuff that stuff but you know you just sort of wait until it bumps into you that's another way of doing it and that is one of the good uses of facebook and twitter and stuff you know that things will just come across your transom yeah but i just don't want the artist to expect too much either (laughs) i also do have two friends who are still very attached to music who once a year with movies i do much more what you're saying and i just don't keep track and i see like six a year but with music i have two friends who are much more still keyed into to hip hop and indie and odd stuff, and they each make like five lists at the end of the year. Right, so I'll get right. the, their favorite Kendrick Lamar tracks and their favorite, you know, the, at the end of the year, I will, I, I really like that curating that they do. Yeah, yeah. And people still, loads of people still do that. And that, that might fall into the waiting for it to fall in your lap. <laughs> Do you have any any music that's fallen into your lap or or or, or other artifacts? No, you know what'll happen to me is I'll um, I'll look at something and I'll uh, go down a kind of research rabbit hole. I noticed that, yes. And I'll think I'll be reading about something and I'll go, "Who is this person? I've never heard of their music." That happens to me a lot, you know. Like I, I had a. Um, I was looking through my albums and I thought, when did I buy this Black Stalin album? And Black Stalin is a, a Trinidad musician, a Calypso musician, politically like re- he's not reggae, but he's like a Rasta Calypso, right? So he's po- political music and stuff. Black Stalin, Trinidad, and Trinidad's really interesting music. And I remember, oh man, I think I was into Trinidad music for a while. And I found other albums, and then I stumbled onto a, 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 a an artist I'd never heard of, and I think his name is Sundrat Popo, and he did this kind of music called Chutney. So there's a lot. There's an Indian diaspora in uh, in Trinidad. So he does this music that's sort of like a combination of of Indian music and calypso, and called Chutney, right? And I was just started listening to it, and I just you know, a couple of weeks, I think, <laughs> listening to this guy's music. You know, I'm not from Trinidad or anything, and it's not, I, I, and some of it I think you'd find maybe a little cheesy or something, but I just, I got into it. And that's how I, that's my approach to music really is like, what is this? And I'll get intrigued with something. Yeah, that's really fun. The dangerous side of that is 
YouTube wormholes like that. Yeah, yeah. Where I'll di- I'll dive into conspiracy theorists. Oh no, thanks. And I get I go deep, and then I'm like, whoa! I, and I and I want to change the world. I want to like I'm like these people can't believe this stuff, and I'm like I'm gonna I'm gonna tell everybody. But with music, yeah, and and art, it's great when that happens. That's the yeah. Me, it's more like I think I'll watch these interviews with Jamie Farr or something. I just something pointless like that and nostalgic. I just miss, I don't, it's just seven, you know, it really has to do with like losing. I've never gotten over losing my grandparents, I don't think. It was like everything, just the world went from being, wow, this is a, what an interesting, colorful place the world is to like, it's, and tainted with death. (laughs) From that point on. Just like that. Just like that. It happened so quickly, you know, and, uh, and I, I love that little cusp there, that little point in my life where the world went from being like full of of potential and interesting to me and colorful and neat to like absolutely a setup for terror. Is that be- because I, you, your grandparents raised you? Yeah, I grew up with my grandparents. So it was the equivalent of your parents dying very young. Yeah, it was like my father dying when I was about 12. Yeah, so, I, you know, that was, uh, and, uh, and it, you know, from that generation, they don't really tell you how sick they are because they're, cause they're, they're, they're trying to spare you. Right? Did you ever have it? Like, we're not going to tell them I have cancer. I'm just going to, just one morning I will be dead. And that will, that, that will somehow spare him. Otherwise, he'll be able to prepare himself. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know the, but the thinking. <laughs> and is. we wouldn't want that. Yeah. My uncle just did that. Like a couple of years ago, he did the same thing. Didn't tell anybody he was dying. That's jarring, you know? You think, well, I know he's not been super well, but he didn't, you know, he was actively dying. Didn't tell his soul, didn't tell his children. Didn't tell my my mother his sister, so you get that phone call, you know. And I know I got to take my mother in the other room. I go, oh, yeah, you know. I tell people now, even when I'm not, I go, yeah, I don't think I'm doing. I don't think I'm gonna be around. <laughs> I do that a lot. I want to get him good and prepared, uh, Jamie. I tell my wife that, and she gets really <laughs> mad at me. Oh, I know. I've been doing it for <laughs> years. I go, I'm not, might not be around much longer. Everybody thinks there's been people. I'm such a whiner that there's been people like uh, listeners think I'm actively dying. Because I'm so maudlin, like I'm so sentimental and maudlin, you know, so I'm going to miss you all. <laughs> I don't think I'm really I'm one foot in the grave, man. And it's not. It's just that I'm like, I'm so preoccupied with loss and and everything. I'm just, a, I'm sentimental. Yeah. Well, to your credit, though, uh, I guess I've been listening to you for four years, maybe. You you went through a period where you said I'm gonna give it up on on Facebook and stuff every now and then. You'd be yeah. like I'm I'm done. Ah, oh, this was a yeah. But you don't. I haven't heard you do that in a while. And at one point, I think I I took you to task, and you're like, oh, I just say that. I know. I my cousin when he was addicted to drugs is like I'm just gonna do cocaine, and and then when the cocaine's run out, I'm done. And then he's like, nah, I'm gonna do crack. So that's I think as a Facebook is like that. Nah, I think I'm just gonna accept that, I, that this is gonna be part of my life. I try to use it for for self promotion only. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you know what I mean. Yeah. Like I'm just kind of like superficial self promotion. And if you're really my friend, you'll respond to this and not just copy the link. But <laughs> oh, the other day. Somebody and I've seen young people do this. Young people, can I speak to you right now privately? Jamie, you can stay in the room if you want. Young people, listen, if you're an artist or something, 
the last thing you want to do is yell at your friends that they're not supporting your art. Really, really, that's the last thing you want to do is because they're your friends and really don't even expect them to be at your shows to support your art. They're your friends. They're for other stuff, like for when you're sick and you need somebody to bring you soup or your basement's flooded or something. You know, don't get them confused. They don't owe you anything. You know, they might think your music sucks and they love you anyway. You must consider that. So do not go on Facebook and go, you people, I never get my friends to support me least of all. Yeah, because they know you, you know. I'm back now. Okay, Jamie, did you? Were you I'm sorry. I, I, I eavesdropped on the whole thing, and I thoroughly agree. And I just want to add that that goes for at times that's gone for me, and for young people of all friggin' ages. Don't do that. Don't do. It. Why are you listening to me? Why aren't you listening to this show? Listen, let me let me just speak to your audience for just a minute, man. <laughs> now listen, you people. <laughs> That's the right. one thing you're gonna yell at my. You're gonna say, listen, listen, you audience who's hearing this podcast. Why aren't you listening to Jamie's show? Totally, that happened. I was at a show. I was at a show, <laughs> and granted, it was poorly attended, right? But the freaking artist starts lecturing. I go, I'm a fucker. I'm here. I'm I'm actually here. Like what you your your beef is with the people who didn't come, I think. And he's like yelling that, you know, oh I used to play stadiums. <laughs> the same thing. Go, yeah, well, you're lucky you're you know, I'm here singing you, so shut up. I, I learned that lesson. Uh uh one one wonderful friend and listener called me to take took me to task for that. Uh and thank you, uh, Molly Bodie, for telling me, Hey buddy, I'm listening. Yeah, I'm listening. I care. I'm at the show. It's interesting to see rock and rollers handle that and how they do. I, I've had occasion to see, because he's a friend of a friend who puts on comedy festivals, I've had occasion to see Robin Hitchcock a number of times over the past few years. And he always seems just really grateful to be out on stage. You know, have, with this kind of legend status, even if it's a couple hundred people. I think there's a lot of people that have like what we'd think of as legend status who have that, who are like really absolutely thrilled to be doing it and are really gracious. I have, I mean, you, if you know somebody, <clears throat> I have a friend who books like bigger acts and, uh, cause he got, runs a big theater. And, um, so, you know, I always hear like, who's really a jerk and who's, cause that's how you treat people that can't do anything for you all that. That's what's telling, right? You know, who who yells at waiters and who doesn't? That's what it comes down to. And, you know, some people that are, you know, the graciousness doesn't have anything to do with how big or small they are. You know, some people that are real famous are real jerks, and some people are wonderful. I recently spent a few years tutoring a, a very, very, very talented young woman who I tried to, she had that sense. She didn't, she doesn't yet appreciate that the being kind to people part is important. It doesn't matter if you're a genius. <laughs> right. <on. laughs> and, and she's moved on from high school, and I hope she, because she, she's, she, she's a genius. Whatever she's going to end up choosing to do, she's going to be really good at. But, uh, yeah, she felt that entitlement to yell at the waiters. I remember uh, I, I was teaching and had a student like that, and I had a talk with him, and the talk was Along the lines of, you know, you are smarter than I am in many ways. You know, you are intellectually my superior. Right now, I am a position of power over you. <laughs> this is what it's going to be like. 
a lot for you. <laughs> you better learn to deal with it, you know, because, you know, you can't go around, you know, lording it over people or, or, you know, you need to be humble about your abilities. And, you know, I'm sure you, you suck at other things. Like right off the top of my head, I would say personal hygiene. Uh, this was a younger, mm. a younger person, college, mm -hmm. like, you know, when you're, uh, oh man, I was so dumb at that age. Did you tell him or no, her about the I hygiene? I would say something like that. That's that's right. ugly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But aside from the hygiene part, that's exactly the conversation I would have over and over mm -hmm. with this person when they would get in trouble for disrespecting someone who maybe wasn't that worthy of respect, but you know, who didn't earn their respect, but at certain certain points in your life you got to you got to yeah, feign respect. Yeah, you, you also for them don't know anyway. with people. You don't know what people going on with people who they really are. You better be nice to them. You have no idea who they are. Exactly. And and what they're what they're going through, and their struggle. So be humble, man. Well, I, I want to end by saying that you really, really do help me with my struggle once a week. Oh, thank you. Every week, and sometimes the timing is just so perfect. Uh, I I can't thank you enough. Man, I'm so. First of all, I'm so glad to hear that. I'm also so glad that I'm surprised when I hear that. That's exciting. <laughs> It just does surprise me, but it's exciting. Good. Thank you so much for telling me. And also tell people when they mean, like, I'm, I'm, I err on that. I haven't been saying what I mean enough to people, I think, and how much what they do affects me. And I, 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 uh, I do have conversations with my head in my head with you all the time because, uh, uh, I, I admire what you set out to do and w how you're doing it and, and that you're, you keep doing it. And it's uh, cumulative, man. The, the work builds up and it's good stuff. And I, uh, in no way do I get to listen to it all. But when I do, uh, it, it, it inspires me and it's good. And I want to tell you that so that you know that and so you feel like you, uh, the sense of accomplishment that you should have. Thank you, sir. Let's talk soon. Take care. Be good. All right. See you, Jamie. Bye-bye. You can find Miracle Nutrition with Hardy White by going to WFMU.org, the most amazing radio station you'll ever hear. And also, uh, you can find them wherever pods are cast, as well as you can find this show. And notes for this show, including notes to Hannah Gatsby's Nanette, I mean links to Hannah Gatsby's Nanette, and several of the topics that Hardy and I talked about at 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's 1-5-M-I-N-U-T-E-S-J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Or find us, as I said, wherever pods are cast, including now Spotify. Ed Patnode is our engineer. Christian Kandari made the music. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger. 